Welcome to Let's Review RN. My name is Bryn O'Donnell, and I'm a certified adult and geriatric nurse practitioner. I work as a cardiology APN and function as a visiting professor and clinical instructor for a BSN program. This is an independent production by myself, and I am not representing any educational institution. My goal is to deliver a condensed but robust review on topics primarily discussed in Adult Health 1 and 2 and some pieces of pharmacology of a bachelor degree nursing program. Over the years, I've learned that students have an immense amount of confusion and questions when they leave didactic, which makes applying what they are learning nearly impossible to the clinical setting. I want to break down the basics so that you can continue to build upon your knowledge and put the pieces together. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Review RN. Today, we're going to be discussing how to identify normal and abnormal heart rhythms called dysrhythmias. This podcast does take some underlying knowledge of electrocardiograms to really follow along. I'll try to use basic terms and be very minimalistic in my explanation so that I can avoid confusing everyone. We will start with reviewing some basics of the conduction system, EKGs, and the electrophysiology mechanism of dysrhythmias. We will move on to some definitions of heart rhythms, and then we'll spend the majority of the end of this podcast talking about atrial fibrillation. To begin, there are four properties of the heart cells that are responsible for starting an electrical impulse that then allow it to transmit to the heart tissue and stimulate muscle contraction. Automaticity is the ability to initiate an impulse spontaneously and continuously. Excitability is the ability to be electrically stimulated. Conductivity is the ability to transmit an impulse along the membrane in an orderly manner. And contractility is the ability to respond mechanically to an impulse. The typical pathway of the conduction system starts with an impulse at the sinoatrial or SA node in the upper right atrium. This impulse then travels to the atrial myocardium via the internodal pathways, allowing for contraction of the atriums. The impulse then travels to the atrioventricular or AV node, then traveling to the bundle of His and down the left and right bundle branches and ends with the Purkinje fibers, which is responsible for transmitting the impulse to the ventricles at a local level. An electrocardiogram, or ECG, also known as an EKG, is a graphic depiction of electrical impulses produced by the heart. EKGs have 12 recording leads. Six of them measure electrical forces in the frontal plane, and the remaining six measure electrical forces in the horizontal plane. The EKG allows us to visualize possible structural changes, ischemia, electrolyte imbalances, conduction disturbances, or even drug toxicity. When looking at EKG graph, it has small boxes and large boxes that serve as a point of measurement. Each small box represents 0.04 seconds, and each large box is comprised of five small blocks, which equates to 0.2 seconds. When looking at a rhythm strip, typically a six-second rhythm strip, you can quickly calculate the heart rate by counting the QRS complexes and multiplying it by 10. Dysrhythmias are a result of inappropriate impulse formation or poor conduction of impulses down the electrical pathway, or a combination of both. The heart has specialized cells which can fire or discharge spontaneously. This is referred to, again, as automaticity. The SA node is considered the pacemaker of the heart, and it spontaneously fires between 60 to 100 beats per minute. A secondary pacemaker, known as the AV node, will fire spontaneously between 40 to 60 beats per minute if the SA node fails to conduct impulses. 
Lastly, the Hiss-Purkinje system fires at a rate of 20 to 40 times per minute if no intrinsic electrical stimulation is caused by the SA or the AV node. Secondary pacemakers can also stem from electrical impulses that form within the cell of the heart that are firing more rapidly than the SA node. These triggered beats are considered ectopic, meaning it is outside the normal conduction pathway. These ectopic signals, which result in an extra beat if impulse gets through, can cause dysrhythmias. Now let's talk about a normal-looking EKG, and I use normal in sort of air quotes because normal is such an ambiguous term, but here we go. A typical waveform for normal sinus rhythm will consist of a P wave, a QRS complex, a T wave, and possibly a U wave. The P wave represents electrical impulse to the atrium, causing atrial depolarization or contraction. The P wave should be in an upright position. QRS complex represents the depolarization of the ventricles or contraction of the ventricles. The first downward deflection of the QRS is considered the Q wave. The R is the first positive or upward deflection in the QRS complex, and the S is the negative or downward deflection following the positive R wave. During the QRS, the ventricles depolarize and contract, while the atria repolarize and relax. T waves represent a time for ventricular repolarization. Lastly, another basic interval we will look at is the PR interval, which is the measurement from the beginning of the P wave to the beginning of the QRS complex. This represents the time taken for the impulse spread to the atriums, to the AV node, to the bundle of Hiss, and down the Purkinje fibers to the immediate point right before the ventricular contraction. Normal sinus rhythm is defined as a rhythm when the electrical impulses from the sinus node is being properly transmitted down the electrical pathway and accompanies a heart rate of 60 to 100 beats per minute. Sinus bradycardia refers to the same conduction pathway in sinus rhythm, but the SA node is firing at a rate less than 60 beats per minute. Sinus tachycardia, on the other hand, follows the proper electrical impulse pathway with a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute. Now we'll talk a little bit about premature contractions. And first, we'll start out with premature atrial contractions, or also known as PACs, which is a contraction starting from an ectopic point or somewhere other than the SA node in the atrium and coming sooner than expected than the normal sinus beat. It creates a distorted P wave in the EKG and can sometimes cause conduction delay to the AV node, but oftentimes it is conducted normally through the ventricles. PVCs are premature ventricular contractions, which are ectopic stimulation to the ventricles, which cause premature QRS complexes or ventricular contraction. Supraventricular tachycardia is a dysrhythmia that starts from the ectopic focus anywhere above the bundle of Hiss. This is often hard to identify as you have to have a recording at the beginning of the dysrhythmia, but it is often because of a re-entry phenomenon or a repeat excitation of the atria when there is one-way block. I think for the sake of time, I won't get into AV blocks or ventricular dysrhythmias today, and that could be a completely different discussion for another podcast. But we will talk about atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation, and we'll dive a little bit deeper into symptoms and treatments for these types of common arrhythmias. Atrial flutter is an atrial tachydysrhythmia, which is identified by recurring but regular sawtooth-shaped flutter waves. The one thing I do want to point out about atrial flutter is that it originates from a single ectopic point in the atrium, primarily the right atrium. It is often referred to as a reentrant circuit and is often seen near the tricuspid valve. We can think of this as an electrical current stuck on a mouse wheel. It just keeps going around and around and around until something interrupts it. 
When measuring the rate of the atrial contractions when compared to ventricular rate, it's sometimes defined as a ratio. So you can have a two to one or a three to one or even a four to one and so on ratio of atrial contraction to ventricular contraction. Now, when we compare atrial flutter to atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation is a more disorganized atrial electrical activity because you have multiple areas of ectopic impulses, which now result in a very ineffected atrial contraction. The atriums are basically fibrillating or quivering. Because it's such a disorganized rhythm, you have varying degrees of impulses reaching the ventricles, and therefore the ventricles beat at a very irregularly irregular rate and rhythm. Atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation can be associated with coronary artery disease, hypertension, mitral valve disorders, pulmonary embolus, chronic lung disease, core pulmonale, cardiomyopathies, hyperthyroidism, and so on. Because these rhythms are often associated with high ventricular rates, clinical symptoms that can manifest often reflect that of decreased cardiac output. Because you have poor forward circulation of the blood, patients can end up manifesting symptoms of heart failure. Again, these symptoms would include, but are not limited to, shortness of breath, pleural effusion, cough, PND and orthopnea, peripheral edema, JVD, and much more. The left atrium is structurally different than the right atrium, largely due to the left atrial appendage. Left atrial appendage serves as a decompression chamber when the left atrial pressures are high. Decompression occurs during systole. Because blood pools during atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter due to poor forward circulation, thrombi or clots form in the atria because of blood stasis. Left atrial appendage serves as a breeding ground for clots and if dislodged during systole can move to the brain and cause a stroke. The goal when treating atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation is to control the ventricular rate to less than 100 beats per minute, prevent stroke, and convert the patient to normal sinus rhythm. We can control the ventricular rates by using AV nodal blocking agents such as beta blockers, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. These agents reduce conduction through the AV node, which reduces ventricular rates. To prevent stroke and atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter, patients may require systemic anticoagulation. DOAX, or direct-acting oral anticoagulations such as Xarelto, Eliquis, and Pradaxa, may be used to reduce the risk of stroke by preventing blood clots from forming in the atria. Warfarin is also used for systemic anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter and is the only acceptable choice of systemic anticoagulation for valvular AFib patients. Of course, when determining if the patient is an appropriate candidate for systemic anticoagulation, we utilize both the CHADS-VAS score and the HASBLED score. The CHADS-VAS score evaluates the patient's risk for developing a stroke based on the history and factors including congestive heart failure, hypertension, and age greater than 65 years of age equals one point and greater than 75 years of age is given two points risk. Diabetes is also assessed and previous stroke and TIA, which accounts for two points as well, is also assessed. Patients with a CHADS-VAS score greater than two have a significant enough risk to require systemic anticoagulation. The HASBLED scoring system is developed to assess a one-year risk of major bleeding in patients taking anticoagulation with atrial fibrillation. HASBLED takes into consideration past history of hypertension, renal disease, liver disease, a history of stroke, prior major bleeds, labile INRs if taking warfarin, age, and other medication usages that may increase the risk of bleeding, such as aspirin, antiplatelets, or NSAIDs. 
and also average weekly of alcohol intake. These are great tools to use that can potentially guide a provider's decision to initiate or not initiate anticoagulation in patients with atrial fibrillation. With the goal being to convert patients back to normal sinus rhythm, there are multiple ways that you can go about doing this. DC cardioversion or direct current cardioversion is a synchronized electrical shock that is delivered through the chest wall to the heart through special electrodes or paddles that are applied to the skin of the chest and the back. Some patients will hold a normal sinus rhythm after DC cardioversion, and others may experience atrial fibrillation once again. Prior to scheduling the patient for DC cardioversion, it's important to assess the patient's other risk factors that may increase their risk for persistent atrial fibrillation, such as obstructive sleep apnea, thyroid disorders, and electrolyte imbalances. If patients do not pose a risk for these types of disorders but are unable to maintain normal sinus rhythm, antiarrhythmic medications can be considered. There are a lot of antiarrhythmic medications to choose from, and some are more appropriate for patients than others. Amiodarone is a popular antiarrhythmic medication, but is sometimes avoided in patients who are younger due to the risk of amyotoxicity after long-term use. Amiodarone also requires frequent monitoring, including every six-month monitoring of liver and thyroid enzymes, as it poses a great risk for pharmacologically induced hyperthyroidism and hepatotoxicity. Once a year, ophthalmology visits are indicated due to the risk of optic neuropathy or corneal deposits. Also, a chest x-ray is used to assess for any fibrotic changes, and this is done on an annual basis. Flecainide is a great option for younger patients, but cannot be used in patients who have underlying coronary artery disease. Assessment for coronary disease is needed such as a nuclear stress test, a stress echocardiogram, or even a cardiac catheterization to take a look at a patient's underlying coronary status prior to initiating therapy. Moltec is not an option for patients who have heart failure and is often sometimes difficult for patients to tolerate as it can cause GI upset. Sotolol is a great option, although it warrants hospitalization for initiation, as it can cause prolonged QTC intervals on EKGs, which would put a patient at increasingly high risk for torsades. Therefore, patients need frequent EKGs during the first 48 to 72 hours of initiation. When antiarrhythmic medications and cardioversion have been unsuccessful or intolerable, then referral to electrophysiologists for assessment in need of atrial flutter or atrial fibrillation ablation is the next step. Ablation works by scarring tissue in the heart to disrupt the electrical signal that are causing the arrhythmias. I'm not going to speak of the exact outcomes of both atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation, but I will say it's known that atrial flutter has a higher success rate of nearly 90% of patients with atrial flutter see success with a flutter ablation. The return of dysrhythmia is likely higher in the elderly population and in patients who have other comorbidities. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Let's Review RN. And remember, you can always reach me at Instagram handle Let's Review RN with any questions you may have. This podcast is for general information review purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or nursing. The use of this information or any materials provided by Let's Review RN are at the user's own risk. This content is not intended to be a substitute for educational teachings through students' educational institutes or organizations.